Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to spend the next few weeks uh, going through this chapter with the understanding that that the Word of God always speaks to us and speaks to where we're at. And so um, we we want to sit under its teaching. And so while you're turning there, if you just bow with me uh, for a word of prayer. God, I thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for ensuring that we have your instructions for us, your direction. And uh, Father, thank you for that. I pray that you'd speak to us through it, that you'd allow us to understand what it is that you want us to hear and, uh, and help us to um, see clearly what it is uh, that you're trying to say to us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, Ephesians 4, let's read the first six verses that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, follow along, if you would, with me as I read. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Jesus, in John 17, uh, his famous prayer there, it's called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays for his followers. He prays for his disciples, those that were on the earth at the time that he would be leaving. He prays for them in many ways, praying for their protection. And, uh, and then in there, he prays also for those that would come after them in, uh, and would respond to their message. So who would believe in the message they were preaching and would follow him uh, and follow them and, and believe. And he prayed for them something very important. He prayed that they would be one as he and the father were one. And of course, we know that God is our, our God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that they are one, three distinct persons, but they're one God. And so there's a mystery in that, but there's a unity to it in terms of how they behave. And so Jesus actually prayed that for us, that we would have that oneness. And so, um, you know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 here is addressing the same issue, and he's kind of putting some meat on the bones of how does this happen? How is it that Jesus' prayer for his believers, for his, or for his followers, that they would be one in such a way that they would act and think and, and behave in unity, right? And so he says, uh, here's how this works. And so he begins to put meat on the bones here in Ephesians chapter 4. And he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing, giving instructions to them. And first thing that we see here in this passage is that he calls them to live a life worthy of your calling. So he says, live a life worthy of your calling. Let's read again verse 1 of Ephesians 4. It says, therefore I, a prisoner, for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from uh, imprisonment, from probably uh, house arrest in Rome. He had faced uh, 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 he'd been brought up on charges by some of the Jewish leaders when he was preaching the gospel. And that had landed him in prison and it got him a trial. And the trial wasn't going the direction he wanted it to. He wasn't being heard. And so he said, I'm a Roman citizen and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. 
Now, this would be like for us if we had a case that was being heard by a lower court and we appealed to the Supreme Court, right? He wanted to get his case in front of Caesar. And so that's what he had done. And while he was in Rome, he spent some time in prison. And as I said, uh, in house arrest, most likely, is where he's writing this book of Ephesians. And there are actually four books that are called the prison epistles because they were all written during this time frame. And the first one is Ephesians. Then there's Philippians. Colossians and Philemon, probably written between 62 and 64 AD as Paul was engaged in this part of his life and ministry. He was actually uh, uh, chained probably uh, at home or at least at home with some uh, of the Praetorian Guard looking over him, ensuring that he didn't leave. And so Paul begins his exhortation here. He begins this chapter by putting some power behind what he's about to say. He goes, listen, guys, let me appeal to you. This is a really important topic, a really important issue that I'm going to address with you. And so I'm going to plead with you. But first, I'm going to set off, uh, start off by just establishing where I'm coming from. And so he starts off saying, listen, guys, I'm a prisoner, right? I'm a prisoner for serving the Lord. And so here I am in prison. Uh, this is my status. And so if you had any question about my sincerity, my authenticity, where I'm coming from, let me just remind you gently that I'm in prison because preaching the gospel. So I believe this. I'm all in, right? Uh, I'm serious about this. And he does this to establish this rapport and credibility with the church in Ephesus. Because honestly, he's going to press into some difficult things. He's going to press them on some touchy issues like, uh, you know, some conflict and getting along together. And he knows this is going to be tough to receive because it always is, right? There's a tendency to push back or to uh, get defensive at any time. We're sort of challenged. And so he knows this is coming. And, and so to preempt it a little bit, he says, listen, guys, here's my heart, man. Look at where I'm at. You can listen to me for a minute on this issue because I've established a credibility here. This is where I'm coming from. I'm in prison because I believe in this, because I believe in you. And because I believe in what I'm teaching here. And so I'm willing to go to that end, to that length. Please listen to me. Um, he's going to deal again with, with a touchy topic. He's going to talk about our relationships with each other and how we get along. And he knows that when he starts into that, what he's probably going to get back, which is all of our first tendency, is to kind of get a little defensive. And go, wait a minute, I didn't, wait a minute, I didn't do anything. Or I'm not at fault. Or, you know, and even if it's, if it's the messenger... That's bringing it. In this case, the apostle, he's going, I, I can anticipate that this, that I might get some pushback here. And you might have a tendency, Paul is thinking for the church in Ephesus, you guys might have a tendency to discount what I'm saying or maybe write it off. Who's he? What does he know anyway? You know? And so he says, listen, here's where I'm at, guys. I, I, you guys know I went on trial before Felix and, and some of the Jewish leaders brought me up on these charges because I was preaching the gospel. I was out there hammering away, slugging away, trying to build the church and reach people. And in that, in that process, I get brought up on charges and, and, uh, and I'm going to get thrown in prison. And so he goes, listen, I, I've appealed to Caesar. That's where I'm at because I wanted to get uh, my case heard and I wanted to have more time to do the work of the ministry. And so that's where he's at. And so at first he establishes that authority. Then he brings the appeal. And the appeal looks like this. He starts off saying, in the NLT, he says, I beg you. Another way to say it is, I urge you. I implore you. I exhort you, right? Any one of those words. Uh, he's at a point of, I can just feel it in his voice here a little bit, a little point of desperation. 
He's saying, listen, this is really important, guys. I need you to listen to me. And I, I'm establishing where I'm coming from. I, I'm honest and pure in it. I, I have uh, your, your best at heart. And so I'm begging you, please listen to me. It's kind of like um, when I was growing up, I had uh, uh, three siblings. There was four of us, and I was the oldest. And so <clears throat> I had a younger brother, a couple years younger. And at times like every day, we would be a little rambunctious, right? And most of the time, uh, time, my mom was like, get outside, you know, get out of here. But sometimes we couldn't for whatever reason. So we ended up in the house and we usually lived in small houses or <laughs> way too small for us. And so we might get a little rambunctious. I might've, you know, egged my brother on a little bit. I might've started some, you know, conflict with him. I don't know, maybe, could be true. But anyway, my mom would be like, hey guys, would you knock it off, right? And you can hear it. The first thing she would start off with was usually pretty, uh, you know, pretty gentle, like, hey guys, would you stop? And then it would escalate, and then she'd be like, knock it up, wait till your dad gets home. And she'd try that power approach, you know? And the problem is, we were boys, and I kind of knew that I probably didn't have to. She probably wasn't going to get the paddle out or something, you know? So we'd keep going. And then, um, and finally, and you maybe know what this feels like, but you get to the end of it, and you're kind of fatigued and a little bit desperate, and, and, and you'd hear that from her, guys, I beg you, would you stop fighting? Right? And, and it's like, that's kind of what I hear in Paul's voice here. It's like, listen, guys, this is a big deal. And so I'm just begging you to listen to me. He's not taking the power approach. You know, hey, I'm, in, I'm in charge. You need to listen to me. He's really coming with an attitude of, listen, you can trust me. Please listen to me. And I'm begging you to listen to what I have to say. It's a strong, urgent, desperate plea that he feels. And I think part of it is the sincerity with which he's coming is because it's so important. You know, he knows that uh, if the Ephesians don't get this figured out, what he's talking about, that their witness, their testimony, and even their ability to accomplish the mission is just going to be minimized, and it's going to be hampered. And so he, he's just coming with that. Hey, guys, I love you. Please listen to what I have to say. And then he goes into his plea. Live a life worthy of your calling. Live a life worthy of your calling. We know that your living life, the part of your life that you live out in front of others is what he's addressing here. He says, listen, uh, there, well, he doesn't say this, but we know there's a believing part of our life, what we believe, uh, the things we believe, and then there's the things that we hope for or have trust or faith in, right? We hope they'll happen. And then there's the things, uh, our philosophies or ideas that we live by. There's a lot of stuff that goes in, on inside of us, right, that, that we might think are important or we might uh, believe in or have conviction on. But really, what affects others at the end of the day is that stuff that we end up living out. And what we actually live out is what makes a difference. And so Paul says, live a life. That part of your life that's living out, that's going to be seen by others, where the rubber hits the road, that's the part I'm talking to you about. He says, live that life in a manner worthy of the calling. What is the calling? What's he talking about? Live in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, the calling is the call to, be, uh, to belong to Jesus. It's the call to salvation, to trust in Christ. See, the Bible teaches us in Genesis, in the beginning, that there's a problem that we find ourselves in as a human race. That really what's happened is that we're under a curse of sin. We know Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and they were innocent. They, had, they were sort of untested and God gave them some instructions uh, do anything you want. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know that Satan came and tempted them. And so we know how hard it is to, to obey God and to trust him because Adam and Eve walked with God. They experienced his presence. He had created them. 
And still when a moment of temptation came, when they were presented with the option, hey, did God really say that you would die? Do you think you'll really, that'll really happen? Well, they, they went in the direction of the temptation. And so they ate from the tree. And when they did so, the Bible tells us that a curse came on the earth. That the curse of sin uh, was brought to bear on all of creation. And so this is the condition we live in as human beings. And Romans 1 teaches us that not only are we under the curse of sin as, uh, as a people, right? Because we live on an earth, uh, on a planet that's been affected by that. But we also have our own individual sin that we're responsible for. We've made choices to go against God's standards. And so in the scriptures, in, in the book of Romans, Paul presents these ideas. He says in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. Here's the standard that God has set for us. It's perfection. It's perfection at reflecting him. So we're made to glorify God. Meaning we're supposed to live in such a way. Our existence is is supposed to be such that we reflect him perfectly. Right? Because he is perfect. And so we're made to reflect him. And we fall short of that. We don't do that both because we live in a world that's sinful and because we make choices ourselves. And so Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, everyone. Then Romans 6.23, Paul says the wages of that sin is death. And we know that what he's talking about there is both physical and spiritual death. Death is separation. That we've come into a condition because of our sin where we're going to be separated from God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, he says, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So here we have the opportunity presented. How do we escape the situation we're in? We're headed down a path to destruction. We're sinners, we're sinful, and because of that sin, we're gonna face judgment. We're going to have to face the music in terms of what we've done and who we are. And that judgment is gonna be eternally separated from God. And in our, in, in you know, sort of earthly terms, we might say we're headed to jail and we have an eternal sentence. And yet he says, listen, this is the condition we're in, this is the state we're in, but there's a way out of that God has provided. That is by putting our faith in Jesus. So it's through him that we can have access to eternal life. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So his movement on our behalf, God moved to save us while we were stuck in our sin before we, we had any idea of our condition really or what we were headed for. See, God moved. He acted on our behalf to save us. And then Romans 10, 9, and 10 indicates how we're to access the salvation. And that is um, uh, to believe in your heart or to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. And so we have this opportunity because of what Jesus has done to see it, to have evidence of it, to examine it, and to put our faith in Jesus himself, because he came to earth, took on human form, God in the flesh. He lived amongst us. He loved us. He cared for us. He showed us who God is. And then ultimately he went to the cross and shed his blood to sacrifice for us. That sacrifice, see, that death was the payment for our sins. Then he was taken off the cross. He was put in the tomb. 
And he, he, was, uh, he was in the ground, in the tomb for three days. And then on the third day, he rose again, proving that he has power over sin and death. And the apostle saying, look, this is the calling that you've received. This is the calling. This, this is who you are. You've been rescued from death into life. You've been saved from a path to destruction. And you've been given uh, forgiveness of sin. You've been made clean. The Bible calls it justified, right? Justified or made right. It's as though you never sinned. And he goes, listen, guys, to the, the church in Ephesus, here's your situation. Here's the condition, the calling. Now live a life, right? Worthy of that. And the Bible really refers to that as sanctification. We learn that when we trust Christ, we're saved by faith and faith alone. There is nothing else that contributes to our salvation is by putting our trust in Jesus. But then we're saved, right, to be sanctified. So and the other aspect, the second aspect of our salvation is sanctification. The, the scripture says it this way, you're set apart. You're set apart for a holy life. So Jesus came to die so that you could have a ticket to heaven, yes. But he also came to die so that you could be set free from bondage to your sin and walk in newness of life. And so this is the condition that Paul's really speaking to them about. He goes, listen, your, your calling is there. Now live in a manner worthy of that. We kind of see a description of this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. He goes, listen, uh, there's a transformation that needs to happen. Your mind needs to be changed so that you know what God's will is for you. The things that Paul's going to address in this passage regarding unity and sort of getting along and figuring how to live together as a church and to be one as, as Jesus prayed, they're going to require a change in thinking. They're going to require that there's a transformation in our minds as to how we see our situation, how we respond to the things that we encounter in life. And so Paul's just urging them to live a different kind of life. And the process of that is to have a change in thinking. Most churches in America are filled with people that most of them would say, I believe in Jesus. I put my trust in him for salvation. And, and are in, they are in the process of, of growing to be like Christ. And there's all different stages in that process and different uh, levels of maturity as the Bible refers to it. And so here's this deal where we're, we come into a relationship with Christ, but to move in maturity, to grow in this, uh, in this behavior that Paul's talking about, to have my mind renewed and to think differently and to look at things differently, why it requires that I put some effort to and I respond to the teachings of Jesus and, and of the scriptures. I have to choose to grow, to believe what God says is true. And I think most churches in America, as I said, are filled with people that um, in some ways still hold on to the teachings of the culture that we live in. Um, I, I was having a conversation years ago with a young man who'd been in my youth group. Uh, and, and he'd grown up in my youth group, spent the whole, all of his high school years, and he was a leader. I mean, he was a strong guy. He'd gone to Bible college. He'd served in a church, leading worship and doing different things. And one day, uh, he came to me. We, had a, we were having a conversation. He said, he said, you know what? He goes, money really does buy happiness, doesn't it? 
He goes, I mean, let's be honest. I know you all the, all the Bible stuff and all that, but let's be honest. Like money really does buy happiness. And I said, well, listen, <laughs> I mean, money does things and can do things. And if you have money, certainly there's a level of comfort you can experience. There's things you can enjoy in this life. But I, I guess I go, I guess it depends on how you define happiness. Because the Bible says happiness is tied to obedience to God. And it has nothing to do with monetary issues. Money is something that we're given. We're to steward it, right? And yes, we can use it to do things we enjoy. God's okay with that. Seems to be okay in scripture. There's all kinds of warnings about falling in love with it or trusting it or looking to it. And so I, I just said, listen, man, I think you're struggling with, one of these things we all struggle with is that here's what my culture says. Here's what the world that I live in says. And here's what God's word says. And so what am I going to choose as I move through life? Which one am I going to attach myself to? And, and so, uh, you know, I pushed back on him, said, no, I don't think it does. And, uh, and so uh, we kind of dropped that conversation, you know. But the truth is, this is the battle we have, I think. We all struggle with it in some way. Um, we take on the beliefs and character traits and morals of our culture. And usually, when we look at the church we might not see a drastic difference between the church and the culture. We might not see this huge difference and distinction in how we live. Now, it's certainly contained within the church, but we wrestle with things. We get caught in some of the same stuff. And so really, the challenge we have is to sit under the scriptures and say, listen, what God says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to believe. And when it rubs up against the culture I live in, I'm going to choose to go against the culture, even though it's difficult. And so this is the nature, it's part of the process of sanctification and of growing. And it's how, Paul is going to argue here, it's how the church can be different and distinct and really reflect God and, and who he is and what he's about and, and his calling on our lives. And so the Bible, we know, calls us to a different way. So we're to live a life worthy of our calling. That is what he's appealing to. Um, that following Jesus means that we have, we have to acquire godly character. Our character has to change. As I said, we're designed, we were created to reflect God's character. And, and so the calling we've received to salvation is a calling to a change. The calling requires godly character traits. Let's keep reading in Ephesians. Let's read verses two and three. He says this, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. He has a list of traits here that we need to put to place and put to bear in our lives. We need to begin to acquire these traits. We need to start living out these characteristics. They're just simply ways of behaving. How do we interact with others? How are we going to treat other people? And what is that interaction going to look like? And that's what he's really hitting on here is these different character traits. And the first one, and listen, let me, let me assure you that the, 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 for the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus here, to put these into practice would have made them stand out in stark contrast to the culture around them. Because the culture around them did not act like this towards each other. And so he's really challenging their, their, their values, their belief system, how they handle stuff. And, and he goes, listen, starts off with, uh, with the word always. And he says, listen, always do these things. Always meaning that consistently, in every situation, even when the pressure's on, behave this way. Now listen, we all know that when the pressure's on, <laughs> it's hard. 
That's when it's hard to do what we know we're called to do. But he really is saying always to indicate that this should be a way that we live our lives with these characteristics as we interact with each other. First word, or the first character trait is humility. He says always act with humility towards each other. Humility, the opposite of humility, is pride. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Humility will look like respect for others, treating others with respect, okay? And that's what it's going to look like. The second character trait he mentions here is gentle. So always be humble and gentle. The, verse, the opposite of gentleness is being harsh. Proverbs 15, 1 through 4 says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. Um, you know, as we uh, go through life, how do we interact with others? Is there a harshness or is there a gentleness? And clearly, he's indicating, follow this gentle path. Treat each other in that way. Third, patience. He says, always, uh, always be patient. The opposite of patience is being short, right? Uh, the quality of being patient, as dictionary.com gives a definition, I think it's a pretty good one, is uh, the bearing or being patient as the bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. It's kind of like when you're going about your business, you're doing the thing you got to do, right? And whatever it might be. Maybe it's uh, irrigating your crops. And uh, you're trying to get irrigation going and you're fighting a little bit because the, the way that, you know, God told it to Adam is it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you're going to produce a living. And so there's always some struggle with it. And so you're trying to get things to work and they're not working with you. And maybe, just maybe your wife's trying to help you and she's trying to be helpful and everything. And all of a sudden you get irritated, right? And you kind of snap at her for something she didn't do at the right moment. I know nobody in here has ever done that. I may have done that yesterday. I don't know. But here's the thing. Uh, this happens in life, right? And so we have this responsibility and opportunity to put to play what God's telling us to do. The attribute is patience, yet we all know patience is extremely difficult. Having someone try to poke you and get you irritated, right? Patience is not responding in anger and annoyance, right? That's what patience is. One of the hardest things to live out, <laughs> admittedly. Patience is hard. Do I, can I endure pain without complaining? I mean, come on, this is tough. It is tough. And, and, and uh, you know, my father-in-law uh, was a man of God, uh, loved God, was a leader in the church for years, helped build a, a church. And he was also uh, a rancher and a farmer. And I got a chance to speak at his funeral, and I just shared a little bit in jest that my father-in-law was a man of God, had extremely uh, solid character, but working cattle would make you question sometimes his Christianity, okay? Do you know what I'm talking about? Cattle can bring out, right? It can bring out the lack of patience in us. Now, being patient with cattle, I don't know if that's required, but being patient with people is. Frank wasn't known for his patience and he had absolutely no use for negative conversation. When he got a call from his wife one day during a busy day, um, she talked slowly and didn't seem upbeat. Frank interrupted her. He said, listen, uh, sweetie, you've got to be brief and positive. And so she paused a moment and then cheerfully replied, I discovered the airbags on our new car were great. Patience is hard, but it's important here. 
The next character trait attribute that Paul mentions is he says this, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The opposite of that is demanding that others change to do things the way you want them to. Fifth, make every effort to stay united in the spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit, being bound together with peace. And the opposite of that is fighting to break apart by living according to our human nature through disagreement and offense. And so here, here we go. Let's just go down them again. Humility is not seeking, or it's not self-seeking, and it's willing to view others as more important than ourselves. Obviously does not go along with our human nature. It's not how we're wired uh, to live, and yet we're called to live that way by God. Secondly, being gentle with each other means using a tool other than a hammer to deal with others. And that can be hard sometimes because we get frustrated. Being patient, again, means not respond, uh, responding by, uh, to being a, a provoked or annoyed or, or hurting even. And handling those things without losing our temper or, or, or responding in anger. That's what patience is. Faults, all the things that you do that are different than the way I do them are faults, okay? And you have a lot of them, believe me. Because if everybody did everything the way I do it, we would all be perfect because I do everything the right way. And if you would just watch and you just listen to me for a minute and quit doing things the way you do them, man, the world would just be a better place, right? That's what faults are. Uh, we see the differences in others as a problem. We don't see it as a good thing. We see it as something wrong with them. Why does it take them so long to make a decision? Why do they seem so impulsive? Why do they need to talk all the time? Why don't they ever say anything? Why do they need time to figure out how to deal with a disagreement? Why do they just have everything to say and don't let me get in, order, in edgewise? I mean, these are the differences in us, and there are plenty of them. God was very creative, and he had a great uh, flair for differences. <laughs> he didn't make us all the same, though there are common themes. Years ago, I was uh, exposed to a personality profile called Strength Finders. And uh, comes out of a company in Omaha called the Gallup Organization. It's very interesting. And you've probably done some of those, trying to figure out who we are. A lot of our issues are trying to figure out who we are and who other people are so we can interact. But one of the things that I like about what they did is they, they didn't describe any character traits or attributes as faults. They present them all as strengths. And then you just have to learn that some people have different strengths than you do. And, and certainly there are dark sides to strengths. They don't always exhibit as a positive thing, but they can. And, and part of the trick in life is learning to appreciate the differences. I think one of the most important things to having a happy, successful marriage is to learn to appreciate the differences in your spouse and not see them as an irritation or a problem, but to realize that God put you together with another person to be a partner. And they're not supposed to be just like you. They're not supposed to do everything just like you. In fact, you're better off if they don't. If you can learn to appreciate that, then you can grow stronger. It pulls you together rather than fragmenting and pushing you apart. Fighting for unity, he says, uh, lastly, fighting for unity through the Holy Spirit. It has to do with this bond that we have with each other because the Holy Spirit is present within us. I don't know about you, but I've heard throughout the years, uh, my wife would you know, go somewhere and interact with some people, and she'd be like, man, you know, I interact with this person, and sometimes we're together, and we come out, and she's like, oh, you know, I think that person's a believer. I could just, I could just sense it, you know? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, she's like, wow, they just, they just seem like, act I just, I think they are. And sometimes she'd go back and ask them and find out they are, you know? And I'm like, man, you're, you're really in tune with this, right? But there is this common bond that we have 
The Holy Spirit is present in us and it draws us together. Um, and, and he is the one that allows us to connect in spite of the fact that we probably shouldn't. You know, the early church, the church in Ephesus and, and the rest of the Roman Empire, they should not have been together in the same building. You had people that were vastly different and didn't even like each other. Again, you had Jews and Gentiles in the same room, worshiping the same God. Those two groups did not get along. They stayed as separate as they could from each other. Um, you had male and female. You know, we know there's been a battle of the sexes ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That was part of the curse, right? You're going you're gonna to fight with each other now. And so uh, those groups have trouble getting along. And then there was slave and free, different socioeconomic levels. They should not have got along. But they were able to because of the, the, the Holy Spirit and his presence in their lives. And Paul's just reminding them of that. Listen, you guys can do this. It can work. And, and here's how you do it. You put aside the behaviors and practices that you learned in your culture, that your human nature leads you to, to live by, and you put into practice these character traits. And if you do that, then this miracle of oneness becomes possible. See, the Spirit unifies us. It is also our faith that makes us one. We are called to believe and follow the same faith. He goes into uh, a a number of verses here that kind of define that oneness, that faith that we all have in common. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, let's read them. For there is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. This list of ones, it means we all have the same belief, okay, regarding these. That's what brings us together in the church. The first one that he mentions is one body. And of course, the Bible uses the metaphor of a body to, re, to refer to the church. And the Apostle Paul, again, ha, goes through a whole, uh, uses that illustration to describe the church and how we're to see each other and how we interact with each other and how it's supposed to work. And ultimately, Jesus is the head and and. And in reality, any believer that is following Jesus, that believes all these things that are on this list, I'm connected to them through the same faith. <laughs> and so, one body. I love hearing sometimes about what's happening in a church in China and what Christians there are dealing with and how they're wrestling with things. And I get inspired sometimes by their response to their particular issue. And then sometimes hearing about a church in a different part of the country can be encouraging. I feel a connection to them because I am connected. We're one. One body. Second, one spirit. Referred to earlier, the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity. In every way, God. He fills and empowers believers. He convicts of sin. And his presence, really, the scripture says, is a testament that I belong to God and that I have salvation. The presence of the Holy Spirit. One spirit. Next, one hope for the future. The promise that we have when we're justified freely by his grace, when we're sanctified, set apart to live for him, then lastly, we're glorified. And being glorified is this hope of the future that one day Christ will return, that we'll be uh, drawn up to meet him, right? And we'll spend eternity with him in a body that is new and perfect. It doesn't have pain and is not marred with sin. This one hope for the future is what keeps us pressing on in this life. It's what we proclaim to the world around us. That there isn't, this is not a hopeless 
existence. But this is an opportunity for us to live for the one who we'll spend eternity with. Next, he says there's one Lord. And this, of course, refers to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was the creator. He submitted to the Father's plan of salvation. Aren't you thankful that Jesus submitted and surrendered to God's plan? Do you know it wasn't easy? Do you know in the Garden of Eden he said, "Uh, God, is there any other way to do this? Is there a plan B? Because I'd like to get out of this one. This is going to be really hard. But he submitted to it. He surrendered to God's will. That is our Lord and Savior. That's the, the example that we have set before us. And he now, because of his obedience, sits at the right hand of the Father. He rules over all, having been given, given all dominion and authority. Then there's one faith, one faith. That is our certainty that it is through Jesus and his death that we can access forgiveness of our sins and spend eternity with God. One faith, trusting in Jesus, is the only way to be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven with God. Then one baptism. This refers to water baptism that is done publicly out of obedience to Jesus as a way to testify that I've made a decision to follow him. And Jesus, of course, uh, commanded us to baptize new believers and to ensure that everyone gets this opportunity to publicly testify to their faith. And then lastly, one God and Father. One God and Father. He is the authority over all of us. He dwells within all of us, and he is living through all of us. What an amazing list of powerful truths that connect me to you and you to me. And they connect me to believers in China and India and Africa and South America, like in, 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 uh, in Scotts Bluff and Garing, right? And in Mitchell and Morrill. This is our faith. It's the core of it. And this is what we believe. This is what one of the things that holds us together. The bond that we have because of the connection we have, because of the, the same spirit in us, and because of the faith that we acknowledge, this is what is to play into or work towards the oneness that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Of course, we need to make some changes. We need to change our behaviors and the way that we act towards each other. We can't live the way we used to. We can't live the way the world around us does. Or we will not achieve the oneness that God has for us. And so we make the decisions to be obedient to him. To follow in the path that God's called us to. To live in a a way, in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. I know that it seems impossible at times. And frankly, I think the only way it's happened over the course of history is because of the Holy Spirit and because of the work of Jesus. He has made it possible, what would seem impossible. And yet it is. And so we follow him into the impossible and we move with him into what it is that he wants to do. And he will do it just as he's done before, again and again and again. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for calling us to belong to you, to have a faith that, is, uh, that, that saves us, a plan of salvation that is real and true. Thank you for that. Thank you for rescuing us uh, and of no effort on our own, pulling us into new life and allowing us to move in direction that, um, that is salvation. 
So thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would help us, help me to live in a manner worthy of that, to follow you in obedience, to live out uh, these, um, this life of holiness that you call me to. God, would you help me, would you help us as we seek to be your people, to be the ones who can point others to you. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.